Well, well, well. Here we are, constant listeners. We made it to episode number 100. Still hard to believe. I keep saying that, reaching the milestone, but we did it, as in you and I. And I hope you had at least half as much fun as I did and enjoyed the past 99 weeks. I'm coming off a root canal procedure, so apologies if I sound a little bit different. It was my first one. Perhaps that's a sign of getting old. I'm doing well. Dentists are amazing when you think about what life would be without them, and if you can get past the fear factor at least. And did you ever notice how there are three components to the dentist's office team these days? You got the dentist, of course, but then there is the all-important hygienist or assistant in the room making sure the dentist can focus on his or her work. And then there is the third component of that team. That is the office staff who decide if you get in or not or when you get in and who handles that Byzantine maze of billing and paperwork. And that maze, by the way, was created by government bureaucrats and bureaucracy. I guess you find far middle themes everywhere these days, including at the dentist's office. Anyway, we, of course, need a very special sports dedication for episode 100. This episode first airs in mid-late April, and I want to tie that time of year and month to our dedication because it was in late April in 1956, the 27th to be exact, when one of the best at his craft ever, and holding one of those likely unbreakable records, officially announced his retirement. The individual was the Brockton Bomber from Brockton, Massachusetts. His name was Rocky Marciano. He remains the only heavyweight champ in history to retire undefeated, going out on top. And interestingly, his short amateur career wasn't, I guess, all that impressive. But then Marciano's pro career, which uh, ran from 1947 to 1955, boy, during that time, he fought in 49 fights, going undefeated. Think about that pace. 49 fights as a heavyweight in eight years, or about six fights per year. Wow. And he held the world heavyweight title from 1952 to 1956. In fact, he's the only heavyweight champion as I said, to have finished his career undefeated. And interestingly, the only guy who came close to sort of besting or matching Marciano with that um, career record as a heavyweight was Larry Holmes, who was 48-0 until he suffered multiple defeats to Michael Spinks. Now, Marciano defended his title six times, all of them successfully, of course, including against Jersey Joe Walcott, from whom he had taken the title originally, and the great Archie Moore. Marciano is a heavyweight. He had a very distinctive style. The best descriptors I could come up with would be um, he was definitely relentless, like Joe Frazier, who came after him. Um, He had some significant sort of historic punching power, much like George Foreman and Mike Tyson. And he had an incredibly strong chin, like George Chavallo. He shares um, with fellow legend Joe Lewis, who Marciano knocked out early in Marciano's career and late in Joe Lewis's career, the highest knockout-to-win percentage in world heavyweight title fights, almost 86%, just shy of 86%. And Marciano's career knockout-to-win percentage of almost 88% remains one of the highest in heavyweight boxing history. So Marciano, in late April 1956, he retired at 31 years young to do what? To spend time with family. And he retired at a record of 49-0. and 43 of those 49 wins were by knockout. We will not see a fighter match what Marciano accomplished. And remember, there are three aspects to his cumulative greatness. So first, you got those 49 wins. Uh, Then you've got 43 out of the 49 wins by knockout. And then, of course, 49-0 undefeated. 
it's one of those, like I said, most likely unbreakable records. One of the biggest reasons it's unbreakable goes back to Marciano's scheduled pace of fights. Like I said, a clip of almost six per year. You compare that to modern day boxers fighting, what, maybe twice a year? It would take a modern boxer 25 years to get to 50 matches at a two fight per year pace. Now, my favorite quote from Marciano was when he said, in the ring, I never really knew fear. Marciano, definitely on my Mount Rushmore boxing. I know Ali is up there with him, but as to the other two, you know, I am truly torn. In fact, I'm probably more torn than any other Mount Rushmore sports when it comes to boxing. And I'm going to complete that monument, constant listeners, but not today. I'm going to need some serious additional thought on those last two faces up there. And they may very well end up not being heavyweights. In fact, I'm almost sure the other two faces will not be heavyweights. I guess stay tuned and I'll keep you posted on when I come out of something like, I guess, an Aaron Rodgers dark room meditation session to figure all this out. Speaking of stay tuned, and with this being episode 100, let me hit for a quick second where you are welcomed and encouraged to check in with what's going on with all things related to the far middle. The connection to Marciano is that we've been creating content and thoughts on this podcast and other efforts over the past two years at about the same rapid pace that Marciano fought heavyweight bouts in his prime. So let me run you through a few ways to follow what we have cooking up beyond the podcast. Twitter, it's always going to be active. You'll find a trove of thoughts consistent with the themes on the far middle there. At Nick Deolius is where you can find me on Twitter. Please follow. Would love to have you. Um, you can connect or follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, the tag there is, of course, Nick Deolius. And please, if you haven't yet, consider purchasing a copy of my book, Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America. You can do so on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or through IPG. All the net royalty proceeds go to the CNX Mentorship Academy. And the book dives deep into the far middle themes. In fact, a little bit of far middle history here on episode 100 The genesis for this podcast was the rolling out of Precipice. The first dozen or so podcasts covered each chapter of Precipice in detail. So Precipice, in many ways, is the reason why we're here today celebrating number 100 of the far middle. Interesting. Uh, NickDeolius.com is the, uh, the hub for just about all of our content. Podcast episodes are archived there, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn links. And also all of the commentaries and news that we publish can be found there. Uh, Precipice book reviews are on there as well. And you can use the contact tab on the website to send me an email if you'd like. I'd love to hear from you. One of the common themes across all these forms of communication and content is, of course, the ever-expanding role of the administrative state and the bureaucrat and big government in the lives of individuals across the Western world. Which brings us to a fitting next connection for episode 100, which is how the national government in New Zealand, of all places, is setting new levels of overreach into individual lives and families. And I think this represents a new extreme of nanny state intervention in usurping the role of the family to manage the most core of the family's duties, which is raising children and young adults. Now, all this centers around the New Zealand government launching what it calls the Love Better Campaign. Now, what is the government solving now for its citizens with this effort? Teenagers' romantic breakups. The program campaign offers support about what to do when the romance ends and suggests healthy ways to process feelings of hurt. So the campaign, which asks people to own the feels, 
uh, features young people sharing real stories to help their peers who may be going through similar experiences. So here's a sample of the content from a government video. Breakups suck, but you can channel it for good. Own the feels. That's what you're hearing from sort of a vo voiceover in a government video. Now, the New Zealand government touts the program to be the first of its kind, but I suspect, constant listeners, that it will not be the last that we see from governments in the West. Yes, this is what the creeping administrative state has come to, and it is a big problem that every citizen should be concerned about. Now, why is that so? Well, think of things across spectrums, two spectrums to be specific. One spectrum is scoring issues from the deeply personal and private on one end all the way to the global macro on the other end. For example, an individual's chosen faith or religion. That's deeply personal. While something like the prohibition of human bondage or slavery, that's a universal rule across all people and nations. Now, another spectrum, the second one, is form of government and governance. So there is the local on one end of the spectrum down to the town square where you live. And then as you start to move to the other side of the spectrum, there's state or regional government and then national government all the way to the international at the very end. International being things like the UN or the IMF. Now, if you think of a grid or matrix of these two spectrums, you can begin to plot where certain issues should fall on these two axes. The more personal the issue is to the individual, the more the issue should fall to the individual and local government end of the matrix. And that is exactly what we're dealing with when it comes to teens dealing with romantic relationships and breakups. Government, and I would argue government at any level, has zero business sticking their bureaucratic noses into those situations. That's the responsibility of the person and his or her family. And if government has anything to say about it, which I am skeptical that it should, the form of government that would weigh in should be of the local variety to reflect the cultural norms of that community versus the national or international, whereby the norms that are being dictated from above, they reflect who knows what's values and beliefs. Yes, we covered and reinforced many things the past 99 episodes of The Far Middle, but one that stands out for sure is this issue of how government and bureaucrats and the administrative state all across the Western world They've grown unbounded with a voracious appetite for far too long. And when you see national governments and Western Republican democracies suddenly taking on the role of relationship therapists for teenagers, you know things have gone too far. That two-dimensional matrix that we were just discussing of deeply personal to universal issue on one axis and from local to international governments on the other axis it applies to another big theme during the past 99 episodes and here at number 100. That is how governments, specifically national and international ones, they never let a good crisis go to waste when it offers opportunity to grow government staffing, budget, and control. And sometimes government will even manufacture a crisis or two if no convenient legitimate one exists at the time to do what? To further the same objective. So let's connect to that and use three big examples of the dynamic at work. All three, you'll see, ended at the same spot on our matrix where policy was set to take freedom from the individual and put it in the hands of government, and where the level of government that ended up with the most control was national or international at the expense of local government say-so. Now, the first is what happened with COVID, a pandemic that, wouldn't you know it, looks more and more as if it was hatched in a Wuhan lab, but anyway, the global pandemic hits, and what do governments proceed to do all over the world? Well, they take pandemic and they layer on top of it 
post-pandemic policies, as in shutdowns of work and the private sector and government services and healthcare and retail and schools and my favorite playgrounds, which proceeds to make just about everything worse. Business balance sheets weaken, student proficiency falls off a cliff, health woes worsen across the board from diabetes to substance abuse to cancer prevention, people get used to being paid not to work, the old lose contact with everyone close to them and become depressed, everybody lost, except, except for government. Government was the big winner in the pandemic policy game board. It told you the job you have is non-essential. It stopped your kids from shooting hoops at the court down the street. It said you're not allowed to visit friends down the street or across the country. It said if you don't get a shot, you're not going to a restaurant or a play. It wrecked everyone's finances with the inability to open up the business or to go to work and then made everyone dependent on government assistance. Government came out of pandemic bigger and worse than ever by design because of pandemic policies. The second example is what's going on with banking and the finance sector. The global financial crisis, or GFC, of 2008 to 2009 was catalyzed by government and central bank monetary policies that created moral hazard and incentivized banks and financial institutions to take on excessive risk. The banks and financial sector hit a wall and a clear crisis emerged. And then instead of survival of the fittest and consequences of risk-taking that you would see in a capitalistic economy and under free enterprise, what did we see in lieu of that? Yes, heavy-handed government intervention through policies such as Dodd-Frank, along with a host of other measures in the U.S., including bailouts. And most notably, there was the Fed's free monetary policies or free money monetary policies that was able to get by us under cover of the GFC's crisis. And guess what? After the global financial crisis came and went, the Fed and federal government, they found a way to keep those existential threat, emergency free money, monetary policies in place for over a decade. Dodd-Frank, the various and sundry regulations and measures beyond Dodd-Frank, and the Fed's permanent emergency free money, zero interest rate policy, cumulatively distorted the capital markets. It punished savers. It picked winners and losers of industries. It pumped up asset bubbles for the 1% and it moved the stock and bond markets more than the underlying performance and metrics of individual companies did. And we saw this all across the globe, whereby the financial sector and capital markets of the United States and the EU and the UK, they look more and more like the controlled economies and markets of places like China than what they once were. And once again, like with pandemic policies, everybody lost. And the losing, by the way, is just beginning because we haven't even begun to fathom the extent of this bill that is coming due. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, it's only the start. Credit Suisse is just the tip of the iceberg. Inflation hasn't even warmed up yet in terms of level and duration. But wait, there is one entity that won in this financial mess created under cover of putting the fire of the global financial crisis out. That's right. It was government. No one in this country can borrow money. Nobody can withdraw money from their account, hire a financial advisor, buy an asset. No one can sell an asset without getting some form of approval from government. I opened a bank account for a small organization that I am affiliated with recently, and we're talking about a few thousand dollars each year of dues um, from the individuals in the group to cover activities. So it's not a for-profit or anything like that. It's not a business. The level of data and approvals needed to open a simple checking account was mind-boggling. I was shocked. Behind every form and signature page and pin and disclosure, 
there was a government bureaucrat, or in some cases, an army of government bureaucrats. The third and final example I'll proffer up is perhaps the penultimate opportunity for national and international government to gain permanent control over the local and the individual, and that is climate change and the need for government to tackle climate change for the benefit of humanity. Climate, it's always changing, and lo and behold, it's doing so today. Human activity increases the trace levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, no doubt, And then here comes government lecturing us of the need to take climate change and morph it into climate change policies. Now, you know the catchphrase by now, say it with me, tackling climate change. So what happened? Trillions of dollars, yes, trillions, in taxpayer resources thrown in an unimaginable mosaic of programs and schemes and sectors and mousetraps, coupled with a heavy-handed coercive grip on government regulation and bureaucratic fiat over arenas such as domestic energy and pipelines and power plants. And for two years on this podcast, we warned time and time again of where this was all going. It wasn't about atmospheric CO2 levels or global warming or code red. It was about control of the individual. Now what are we seeing? Gas stove bans, combustion engine car bans, natural gas hookup bans, gas station bans, plastic bag bans, gas lawnmower and leaf blower bans, and they're coming for washing machines the size of your house, the type of furnace that you have, and so much more. You know, within the next year, I predict you will see governments or international pseudo-government entities like the UN calling for the taxing or banning of certain foods. Beef for sure, perhaps beer and seafood. And why? The official argument is going to be they have large carbon footprints in their supply chain, which, by the way, is true. But the real reason is the administrative state wants to dictate what you do, where you live, and what you eat. And it wants to dictate how many kids you have, which is why it's only a matter of time before these entities start penalizing families that have kids. Heck, they already brainwashed many young people that having a family and children is equivalent to original sin against Mother Earth. Everyone is getting and will continue to get crushed by climate change policies. That includes small businesses, the middle class families, farmers, working poor, flyover country, and coastal America, even if coastal America refuses to admit it. You know, how's it going New York City and California when it comes to your demographics and your quality of life and your future prospects? The next generation is getting bamboozled the worst. They lose individual freedom and opportunity. And at the same time, they're going to get stuck with the tab for the trillions of dollars this orgy of spending will create, which is ironic considering you know how the most gullible true believers of tackling climate change and the code red crowd these days are going to be the ones that are the most um, sort of cheated. But there is one stakeholder that wins in all this code red theater. Yes, that is government, and particularly big government and these international pseudo-government entities like the United Nations and the IMF and the World Health Organization. They love climate change policies and the tackling that goes with it, because there's never been a bigger and more effective scheme in history to match its audacity and payoff opportunity, except for maybe one genius concept from the past, the Catholic Church and original sin. Yes, the idea that you're born in sin and need to make up for it your entire life by doing what? Paying up to the church and doing what the church tells you because they have the hotline to God. That was epically genius. But climate change policies, they may end up doing one better, than when it was all said and done. Now, we could go on and on because there are many, 
many more examples of this dynamic with a problem or reality being used to conveniently create bureaucratic state advantage. We just covered three of the biggest. Might dedicate a future episode of The Far Middle on exclusively this topic. It'd be fun to see how many topics and examples of this dynamic we come up with. Maybe frightening and fun is a better duo of descriptors than just fun. Oh yes, those three massive examples of how government and bureaucrats take an issue and they turn it into unfathomable opportunity of scale. It leads to the same endgame, which is a loss of freedom for the individual and more say-so for national or supranational government. But it also ties into another connection, one that we are never at a loss to find current material on in the far middle, which is how malignant the media and journalism have become the past few decades. The institution and the profession, they've been commandeered and hijacked by the left at about the same time the left has been subsuming government, by the way. So let's connect to how media reports on those three examples we just discussed in the corner of that two-by-two matrix of individual government and local government, international government, because the media have been consistent in the handling and reporting of all three issues. And in this case, consistency is not a good thing. Now, here's what's intriguing about this thought we are connecting to. It comes down to the omission of a single word. Now, allow me to be more specific. The it that I just referenced, that pertains to the difference between accurate reporting and propaganda. And I will explain that in a second. Uh, The single word of omission that switches a headline from truth to fantasy is the word policy, omitting the word policy. Now, constant listener, I know what you're thinking. How can simply removing the word policy from a headline or a sentence turn the journalist from objective truth teller to propagandist for the left or for government? Well, let's take those three examples we just walked through. I'm going to give you an actual headline for each, and all three of these headlines, they came from major media outlets and national or international papers, and we'll see how that single word of omission, policy, makes all the difference with media credibility. Now, first up, is the most respected name in business newspapers, um, one that has a street in its name. And this came from late March. The headline read, Pandemic Erased Gains in Detection of Autism. That was the headline. The pandemic did not do that. What the headline should say is the exact same thing with the addition of the word policy or policies after pandemic. So the headline should read, Pandemic Policy erased gains in detection of autism because it was the shutdown of schools and physician offices that directly prevented detection of autism, not a virus from Wuhan. One word's omission gives government a pass. Its inclusion makes the headline objectively true. Next up is in the arena of banking and finance, and this comes from the most popular business news channel on cable. The headline from its webpage proclaimed, Inflation Pressures Bank Balance Sheets. Now, this was from earlier in March when Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse were going under or being taken out for cents on the dollar. So what's missing? That crucial word yet again, policy, because it was the inflation policy or policies across government that stoked general inflation, that enabled risk-taking by banks, and that forced the Fed to start hiking rates. That's right. Government and central bank policies intended to create inflation. And there can be little doubt about that, and it's clear that such policy worked quite well. So we've got quite the inflationary toxic stew, as we're learning, and inflation didn't rise up as a comic book leviathan on its own, as Milton Friedman taught us. 
Inflation is created by government and central bank policy. Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than an output. Now, one word's omission changes the entire meaning, inferring that inflation magically showed up on its own, creating the banking and capital markets mess we are now in. No constant listeners, it was inflation policies from our government on spending and stimulus and from our central bank and global central banks on free money and negative real interest rates that created inflation in this current banking system mess. The last example is with the biggest of the big themes, and that, of course, is climate change. Now, here I could pick from hundreds of headlines across just about every single major media news outlet, but in the interest of valuable far middle time, let's go with one from a few weeks ago. This one came from a banner at the bottom of the screen of a top cable news organization, um, one that a famous actor that does the, um, the voiceover for. The headline read, Climate change hits crop yields and spikes food prices. By now, you know how this works, right? Add that missing word policy or policies, and you go from myth to reality. The headline should read, climate change policy hits crop yields and spikes food prices. Ain't that the truth? Remember, food production, supply chain, and preparation is cumulatively extremely carbon intensive from fertilizer to machinery to trucks to refrigeration to cooking. And when the whole of government gets behind climate policy to hit every link of that food supply chain, what would you expect is going to happen to the agricultural crop yields or to the price of eggs in the grocery store? Well, exactly what we've seen happen. Yeah, I guess the uh, the tagline for this dot in our connections is something akin to, it's the policy, stupid. And that's a shout out to James Carville, the great Bill Clinton advisor who came up with, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, when the left and bureaucratic state drive policy, the media covers for them by treating all of us as if we are stupid. And okay, here's a bonus um, fourth and final example of this phenomenon at play. This time I'll show you how two of our three examples can combine into a single headline that follows this, uh, this sort of uh, phenomenon. So let's cover a duo of financial banking and climate change. The headline from late March says, Treasury Secretary Yellen says climate change poses risk to financial markets. You take it from here. Insert policy after climate change, and what does it read to make it factual? Treasury Secretary Yellen says climate change policy poses risk to financial markets. That's the objective truth, constant listeners. Well, we're just about out of time. And I do feel uh, like this milestone episode turned out quite well. I hope you're pleased. I'm going to close with recognizing a famous event at the end of World War II that happened in late April. So Elbe Day is April 25th. It marks when in 1945, U.S. and Soviet forces met at Torgau, Germany, on the Elbe River during the invasion of Germany. Now, you may have seen those photos and reels of the United States uh, with Soviet soldiers arm in arm, both smiling. And when one thinks about it, 1945 and Elbe Day next week are the last time Western Republican democracies, led by America, and the communists or leftists worked together on anything. Only fascism created a common interest and mutual goal, and that's because America and the left, they've got DNAs that dictate each be mortal enemies of one another. And it's a fitting close to episode 100 of The Far Middle, 
because it speaks to what the primary driver is to my advocacy efforts with the podcast and everything else that I'm involved with. This is focused on the protection of the individual and individual rights in capitalism, the free market, free speech, and the Constitution over the menace of the left. And whether it's a menace of the left coming from the communism or the socialism variety, and in whatever form of bureaucratic or administrative state it manifests in nationally or internationally. I hope you enjoyed number 100 and you're pleased. And thank you again for spending part of your busy week on the far middle. Spread the word and dial the far middle up again next week.